All right, you're going to bear with me today. I was outside in the rain all day yesterday in Atlanta. Man, I feel like I have a head cold. So um, if I ramble and don't make sense, it's because of that. And if I do make perfect sense, it's because of the Holy Spirit. So we'll figure out who to give credit to at the end of the service. Christmas season, the Christmas season does one of two things. It brings out the best in us or it brings out the worst in us. It brings out those that are excited and they're joyful and it's kind of an exciting time. Or it brings out that time of year, man, where everything seems to be. Bear with me for a minute here. This fan is going to drive me crazy. That's what happens when Richard's not here. Um, it brings out the worst in us. It, it ramps up our stress. It ramps up the financial pressure. It, it ramps up our anxiety. And so many times what ought to be the happiest time of the year, the most joyful time of the year, turns into literally the worst time of the year for people. I've never understood the mindset of not looking forward to the holidays because I kind of lean towards this way. It's my favorite time of the year. I love Christmas. When I first met Christine, I remember we were coming up on our first Christmas holiday, and I was like, man, I'm so excited. I'm so pumped. She's like, I hate Christmas. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. We got to get that fixed. We've got it fixed over eight years. And now we have a 13-foot tree in the living room and an eight-foot tree in the other room. And you can't move anywhere in the house. It looks like Christmas threw up all over our house. And, man, I love the holidays. But it does, man. It just magnifies what is already a crazy life. Let's just be honest. Day-to-day living is crazy enough. And then you add Christmas parties and Christmas this and Christmas that and dealing with traffic and dealing with shopping. I live on Highway 20 and traffic is always bad. And the last two weeks it has been murderous bad. I'm not the type of person who lays on the horn and cuts people off and flips them off and cusses them out. That's Christine. But man, I have honked my horn at more people, flipped more, told more people they were number one than I have in a long, long time. It's just everything gets magnified. And we're in this series called We're Scrooged, where we're looking at the things that steal our joy, the things that kind of become the humbug of the holiday season. And today we're going to look at a subject that for some reason the church just overlooks. And I've never really understood why the church overlooks it because, man, the Bible talks a lot about it and gives a lot of examples of people dealing with it. We're going to be talking today about the subject of depression. And depression is that word that the minute you mention it, opinions begin to pop up. It instantly leads to stereotypes in our mind. So many people look at depression and they automatically associate depression with weakness. That, uh, depression, that, that's something that crazy people deal with. That's something that people ought to be able to just to flip a switch and get over real quickly. I've been pastoring for 23 years now. And I'll just be honest with you, I've heard about three messages my entire life on the subject of depression. Matter of fact, in those sermons that I've heard on this subject, the preachers have got up and basically said, if you're dealing with depression, 
It's a sin issue. You have unconfessed sin in your life. It's depressing you. And that's the reason you're struggling. And nothing could be further from the truth. Now, let me also make this very clear to you. And this will offend some of you. This will upset some of you. Hey. Very loud today. I mean, I know you're the star guitar player. And you're like the hero out here. And you just got to do a big guitar solo. But I'm trying to preach the Bible and I can hear you back here talking. All right, where are we at? Depression. <laughs> Depression's messy. Depression's uncomfortable. But the reality is depression is not going away. I read this week that the use of antidepressants in the last 24 months is up 400%. That's staggering to me. Up 400%. We're the richest and yet the most depressed nation in all the world. And for some reason, the church has chosen to remain quiet on the issue. And is there any wonder why I made a post this week saying I was going to teach on the subject and immediately the comments became, depression's not real. 90% of the people that have it, fake it. Why would anybody want to come out and be open about it? That being said, this is what I was going to say before I went backstage. Let me make this very clear. I do think we live in a day and time where we've glorified mental illness somewhat. We've glorified emotional illness. We've glorified being depressed. We wear it like a badge of honor, and it becomes a crutch for so many people. It's your excuse for sucking at life. I suffer with depression. I think depression is very real. But I also think that we can take steps to begin to get victory over depression. That we can harness the depression for victory instead of defeat. And the Bible talks so much about that. If anybody ever comes along and tells you that depression is not real, they're lying to you. If anybody ever comes along and says it's a spiritual condition and you need to get right with God, they simply haven't read their Bible. Moses went through a time of depression. In Numbers 11, in case you want Bible to back that up, Numbers 11, verses 14 through 15, he actually asked God to kill him and put him out of his misery. He's so depressed. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, says he went through a time that was so hard that he literally thought he wouldn't be able to endure the sadness and depression he was dealing with. But today we're going to hang out and look at a guy in the Old Testament who's one of my favorite characters, who had so much victory in life, that, and, and was such a smartass, for lack of a better word. That's literally what they, they don't call him the smartass prophet, but they call him the sarcastic prophet. We're going to look at Elijah today. Elijah was just whole nother level in his confidence, if you will, of what God had called him to do. He borderlined on arrogance in what God had called him to do. 
He had more victories than almost anybody in the entire Bible. And yet we're going to look and see that he went through a time of depression and there's some very clear steps on how he got there. And there's some very clear steps on how he got out of there. But to give you a little backstory on Elijah, in case you don't know who Elijah was, before we get to our text today, Elijah has showed up on the scene a few years before. He's a prophet of God, and he has very quickly made a name for himself as the person during this time that God speaks through. The last few years of his life were literally a skyrocket in being known. It was a whirlwind of activity. He comes on the scene, and immediately our first introduction to him is he goes before King Ahab, and he says, God told me to tell you that he's bringing up drought across the land, and it won't rain until I tell it to rain. Sure enough, it doesn't rain. Again, God then sends Elijah to Kareth Ravine because King Ahab wants to kill him because he's brought a drought upon the land. And in this ravine, God provides for him every day through birds. Ravens would come along and drop off meat and bread. And the brook, remember they're in a drought, but yet the brook would give him nourishment. The brook dries up. And God sends him to another place and says, go to this town and you're going to find a widow there and this widow will take care of you. He gets there to the widow and he finds out that the widow has just enough oil to make her last piece of bread. And she plans on eating the bread. Her son is going to eat the bread and they know over the next few days they're going to die from starvation. (laughs) Yet God kept providing oil and more bread, and more flour. Every time she would dip her cup into the barrel, there was more, and God provided, and they lived. One day, this widow's son dies, and Elijah takes him upstairs, and he prays over him, and the boy comes back to life. What I'm telling you is, is Elijah's in tune with God. He's walking with God. God is using him for great things. He is anointed of God. He is called of God. After this season of hiding with the widow and the high, the season of hiding at Kareth Ravine, God tells him to go back and confront the king again. And he says, I'm going to make a challenge to you, king. You bring all your false prophets, and we're going to put this big stack of wood up, and we're going to see whose God can call down fire and start a fire. King brings about 150 prophets of Baal around, and they stack up all this wood, and they begin to call down to their God and Nothing happens. This is where I become an Elijah fan. Elijah begins to mock the prophets. These prophets are cutting themselves, bleeding on the altar and calling down. And Elijah's like, hey, maybe he's sleeping. You ought to holler a little bit louder. And then he says, hey, give him a minute. Maybe he's in the bathroom. And that's why he's not starting the fire. Finally, the prophets give up. Elijah walks up on the scene. He douses the wood and water. Calls out to the God of the heavens, and instantly the fire comes down from heaven. And they prove that his God is the true God. (laughs) And that wasn't enough. Remember, there's a drought in the land. Elijah goes off and he prays seven times for God to end the drought, and suddenly the drought's over. And King Ahab has had so much of Elijah punking him out. 
He's had so much of Elijah having victories and making him look foolish that the king, let's check this out. The king literally says, I'm done, I resign. And he gives the throne over to his wife, Jezebel. He says, you take it, I'm done. Every time I try to lead, God uses this man to confront me. God uses this man to change my plans. I've tried to call out to our gods to overcome him, but he doesn't. He he must be a man. I'm just done. So Elijah is at his all-time high. The king resigns, and you think it would be a great time of victory, a great time of people turning to the living God because of what Elijah's doing. But the minute Jezebel becomes queen, she decides the first thing she's going to do is kill Elijah. 1 Kings 19, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah and says, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. She says, I'm sending a message to you and letting you know that if you're not dead tomorrow, may my gods deal with me. You would think, Elijah, i got to be real honest with you. You would think, Elijah, would brush this off and go remember all the great victories that God had given him. All the great times God had used him. But for whatever reason, that's not what happened here. The next verse, verse 3 says, Elijah was afraid. Can I tell you that many times the lowest point in your life will come after the highest point in your life? When you've had your greatest victories, it all suddenly comes crashing down. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself was a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, and he sat under it. He prayed that he might die. You just had a whirlwind three years of victory. No offense, ladies. But a woman tells you she's going to kill you. And you run off and ask God to kill you? I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. After great victory, Elijah goes into a sense of depression. He goes off alone. He's sitting under a tree feeling sorry for himself, and he literally asked the God who's given him victory at every point in his life to take his life. I don't understand. It's confusing to me. You would think if anybody had the faith that God was going to protect them, it would be Elijah. But he's so freaked out and so depressed that he asked God to take his life. Full tilt depression. Miraculous provision, miraculous protection, a miraculous God over and over and over again. For years, he'd seen the faithfulness of God. And in one day, a woman says, I'm going to kill you. And he wigs out. He freaks out. He panics. He runs for his life. And as I'm reading this story and I'm trying to see a pattern here and I'm thinking about the times I've known people to go through depressive states and, and I think about the times that I've went into, I guess, what you would call depressive states, I begin to see a pattern develop that is so clear. Getting depressed 
going into depression can happen to any of us. Let me make this very clear to you today. If you think that you're above being depressed, you're fooling yourself. Your your depression may manifest itself different, but there's not a time in our lives that any of us have been exempt from depression. It comes out of nowhere. It comes normally when things are going great. And it can literally be crippling if we don't get victory over it. You say, Gary, I don't understand how this happens. Well, he lays it out right here how it happens. There's a pattern, if you will, to depression. (laughs) Step number one is very simple in depression. Wear yourself out. Wear yourself out. When he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there while he was Himself went off a day's journey to the wilderness. He came to a broom brush, sat down under the parade, made I, I've had enough, Lord, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. If you'll notice, and you go back the couple of chapters before this, Elijah has been on a whirlwind tour. He's been doing what God has told him to do, but he's been in a massive years of a spiritual battle. Praying, trusting God, praying, Seeking God, praying, trusting God, battling, faith, battling, faith, battling, faith. And suddenly he hits the wall. What's the old expression? The straw that breaks the camel's back comes along. Victory after victory after victory, but he's probably never taken time during this time to make sure he himself is taken care of. That happens to so many as we spend all of our time taking care of others, since so much of our time working, so much of our time pushing, never taking off, never resting, never unplugging, never getting off social media, never unwinding, never allowing our body that time of rest. And eventually, I don't know when, and it's different for every person, but eventually we hit that wall. And he takes off and he runs and he runs. If you were to go study, he couldn't have ran any further. He's at the southern tip of the country. He's exhausted. The only thing he can do is center this tree, ask God to kill him. And in the midst of talking to God, he lays down and he goes to sleep. Everybody I know that has ever went into a depressive state, that goes through a period of depression, it normally starts with exhaustion. Some of you moms, let me just be real honest with you. You're wearing yourself out. Are are moms not the superheroes of the world? What about the dads? Dads are good too. But it's always been funny to me. Moms and dads, in the day and time we live in, both go work full-time jobs. Yet mom comes home and then cooks dinner, cleans the house, tends to the kids, makes sure everybody's taken care of the next day for school. But for some reason, when dad comes home, he's done for the day. And yet we wonder why you're feeling that depressive state. You've pushed and you've pushed. I deal with entrepreneurs all the time who are starting businesses, and they, and they think, man, I've got to go seven days a week, 20 hours a day, seven days a week, 20 hours a day. And listen, when you're starting a business, you've got to work hard. It is what it is. 
But if you don't step back and take a break, and if you don't rest and take care of your body, you can't maintain that very long. I always think the height of arrogance that we as humans have is to never rest. Yet when God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis, he, on the seventh day, he rested. So the God of the universe needs to take a day of rest, but we don't. Amazing, isn't it? And we wonder why we hit that wall. You're working, you're going to school, you're trying to balance blended families, especially during the holidays. Holy smokes, pay the bills, keep your marriage together. I got to be here for this person and there for that person. I got to get this in. I got to get that in. Oh my God, I got to clean the house because God forbid a little bit of dust sits on the cabinet for a day while you rest. Got to get this handled. And we push and we push and we push and we push. I got to be there for them. I got to be strong for everybody. And while we're being strong for everybody and we're making sure everybody else is taken care of, we don't take care of ourselves. And eventually we crack and we hit that wall and we wear out and we've worn ourselves out. You finally do take some time off and you go on that two weeks of vacation and you get a year and the first three days of the vacation, you're worthless because you haven't taken off in seven, eight months. Well, we live in a day and time that actually actually embraces that and honors that mindset. And we wonder why depression's at an all-time high. Because, man, we value the hustle. We value busyness. We value go, 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 go. And we look down upon taking a day of rest. Making sure we're eating the right foods. Taking care of our body and getting the sleep that we need. Your body's not made to maintain in that way, and so we wonder why suddenly we crash. So, so if you want to get depressed, just wear yourself out. Super easy. The second thing, you want to get depressed, number two, ready? I'm giving you some encouragement. I'm going to show you. My, my daddy said if you're going to do something, do it right. So if we're going to be depressed, let's do it right. I'm going to give you step by step today. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to shut people out. 1 Kings 19.3, when he came to Bathsheba and Judah, he left his servant there. The man who was loyal to him. The man who was... Now, when we see servant, we automatically all interpret that as slave. Servant here was a man who was sitting under Elijah in a mentorship role. He had been with Elijah through the thick and the thin. He was his second in command, if you almost like his assistant, if you will. Everywhere Elijah went, he went. He made sure Elijah was taken care of. Yet Elijah begins to run for his life. He's wore out, and now he decides this is the time I need to be alone. He abandons the person closest to him. You stay here. I'm going on. This is what most of us do when we finally crash. We shut everybody out of our lives. We go through something traumatic. And instead of getting and rallying around the friends, we just got out of a series on friendship. Instead of rallying around those friends and the people who would be there for us and lift us up and encourage us and help us during that time, we shut them out. And suddenly, not only are we tired, we're alone. I'm the king of this, man. When I start to get wore out, the wall goes up. I don't return text. 
I don't want to be around people. I want to get lost in the world of TikTok and funny videos. Disengage. There's nothing healthy about that. I put that wall up. I'm going to deal with this myself. I I, I don't want to put this on you, though, though everything they're dealing with we put on us. So we're going to wear ourselves out. We're going to shut people out. The third thing we're going to do, and this is main, can I go ahead and be honest with you? Don't don't put this up yet, Xander, because I want to preface this one. I got to be real honest with you. In this crowd right here, this next step, some of you are the best I've ever damn seen at it. Some of you are so big into step three, you make me want to slip my own wrist. I feel like Gary doesn't like me and avoids me. I, I avoid you because you are the master of step three. Put it up, Xander. Focus on the negative. You're wore out. You're alone. Now you're going to focus on everything crappy in your life. That's what Elijah does. He said, I've had enough. I'm no better than my ancestors. Funny is no one's asking, was he better than his ancestors? But self-pity has begun to take over here. You know what self-pity does? It exaggerates. I'm never going to be good enough. My life's never going to get better. I'm never going to get that good grade in school. I'm never going to get that promotion. I'm never going to have a good relationship with my kids. After the ice cream I ate, my bottom is never going to fit in these jeans. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms. I thought that was a southern thing, and then I heard my wife singing it the other day. It must be a Yankee thing, too. My grandmother used to sing that song to me all the time. Who knows that song? Oh, I'm going to sing it for you. You don't know that song? Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms. Down goes the first one. Down goes the second one. Big, fat, juicy worms. Like, that's the stupidest song ever. Like, I I get no one likes you, but what's eating worms got to do with it? Focusing on the negative. No one likes me, so I'm going to punish myself by eating worms. Man, some of you couldn't focus. Like, you know what kills me? The same people who gripe about it getting cold during the wintertime, We're on Facebook yesterday griping because it was 70 degrees. I thought it was December. And then the same people on Facebook right now say, man, I wish we'd have a snow day. It ain't snowed in two years. You'll gripe after a day of snow. 
And you wonder why no one wants to be around you. You're freaking miserable. No matter what you do, there's something to complain about. You point out the negative in everything. Golly. I saw someone the other day, literally, literally on Facebook, that's what it said. Husband and I are going on our first date in 18 months. So excited. Cool. Later on, it was nice to be away from the kids for the first time in 18 months, but had to wait at the restaurant for 30 minutes before we got seated. How about enjoying each other for 30 minutes, you complaining, nagging witch? Holy smokes! Too hot, too cold. Man, focus on the negative. I hate my job. I'm never going to get another job. Hey, man, you applied for any jobs? Well, no. Well, then, of course, you're never going to get another job. Man. Talked to someone the other day. Been saving up for a car for two years. Here, I got a car. Awesome. I mean, it's not what I wanted. You've been walking for two years. It's got four wheels. Negative people. When you're depressed, focus on the negative. How your life's never going to be good. How it's never going to be right. I'm never going to find Mr. Right. You found him about seven times, but you friend-zoned him. Because you'd rather be a, find a project at the bar. Focus on the negative. Man, Gary just ignores me. Check yourself because you're negative. We'll shut people out. We're going to focus on the negative. You know, this fourth step, we're just going to forget about God. Just forget about him. Queen says she's going to kill Elijah. I I don't know about you, but I like to think my mindset would be, I remember when God called me into ministry. I remember when God told me to go before the king and tell him there was going to be a drought in the land, and a drought came. I like to remember when God took me to care for Ravine, and he brought birds to feed me T-bone steaks and Texas Roadhouse Rolls. You think I sweat this queen? I remember when 150 of their prophets couldn't get the fire to start, and I called down fire from heaven, and God brought down fire. I, I like to think I would remember that I'm staying with the widow, and her son dies! Dead! And I pray over him and God brings him back to life. I don't, you don't see that very ever. Yet a woman comes along. Jezebel. The Jezebel. He's in the southern tip of the country hiding in the woods under a tree asking for God to kill him. 
I don't understand it. After seeing all that God had done, this like the supernatural protection, provisions, birds feeding him water from a brook during the drought, raising from the dead, fire from heaven. God's not going to come through me this time. Just forget about God. That's the easy part of the message. It's easy for me to tell you how to get depressed. And I guarantee you it follows that formula. The question is, though, how do we overcome depression? Because as funny as some of those things are, and we try to make everything kind of laughable around here, we've all been there. I have been tired before. I have walked away from friends before and just wanted to be alone when I shouldn't have. I've done it to my own family. Me and Christine went through one of our toughest times. And I said, I said, I just want to leave. I'm, I'm leaving. She, You're leaving? She, you wanted to watch it? No, I was just leaving for a, a few years. <laughs> like, no, no, you ain't. Yeah, yeah, I'm leaving. I just need to. I'm going to go out west for. No, you're a grown ass man with responsibilities. You ain't leaving. And she didn't say it that nice. I contend, and I'm a pretty positive dude. For all the things you can say bad about me, I'm a pretty positive guy. I mean, I can get to where I focus on the negative. And I can stand up here and tell you story after story after story of God's goodness. And yet I forget about God sometimes. So what I'm telling you is we're all going to go through this. Especially during the holidays, it seems magnified. This is the first time in our family, that holidays have come along where someone who was very loved in our family isn't there anymore. It's a struggle. You miss them. And it's the first time that sometimes family isn't getting together, regardless of how stupid the reasons are, it still stinks. And the stress of everything that goes on and events for us and Christmas Eve services and man, you know, we, we got the kids need to go to this parent's house on this day because their family's getting together and on this day, and, hey man, when do we juggle this and when are we going to fit this in? And man, you need a full-time assistant to work the calendar for the kids. And, and then you had band concerts and cheerleading uh, banquets and it's like, who thought let's end the seasons all around Christmas time and add more to the, the mix? And then we own a business, and so Christmas time, it's busy in that business. So it's easy to get scrooged real quickly. It's easy to get so overwhelmed that all of a sudden depression sets in. Let me make this very clear to you. Going through a period of depression doesn't make you bad or wrong. Staying there and not taking the steps God gives us to overcome it is what will destroy you. So how do we do it, Gary? Well, it's the great thing about this book. It always gives you the answer. Here's Elijah. He has no hope. He's hiding out, wanting to die. And God sends an angel to him. And the angel is the representation of God. He's speaking on behalf of God. And there's no rebuke from the angel. Notice that. No rebuke from the angel for being in the depressive state. No shame from the angel. 
If I was the angel, can you imagine how that'd be? I, I know my own stupid cliches. I know what I say. You know, life's full of winning and life's full of losing, and you're losing right now. You're acting like a loser. Sit there under your tree and whine and whine and whine, or get up and win. That's how I'd be. Not this angel, though. This angel comes along and begins to minister to Elijah. And in the process of ministering to Elijah, he shows some very important steps on how we can overcome depression. And let me make this very clear, too. Depression is an event. So just because you overcome it in 2021 doesn't mean it won't come back in 2023. So you continue to put these steps in. In the New Testament, there's an issue Paul's doing. He said, I die daily to those issues. He said, every day I deal with this struggle. Some of you will deal with depression every day, and you've got to take these steps. Some of you will deal with them once a year. Some of you, like me, it doesn't come along very often at all. But when it comes along, it's serious, and you've got to deal with it. The first thing we're going to do to overcome depression is we're going to eat and rest. Eat and rest. You say, eat. Check it out, check it out. Check it out. I would just preach as itself. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. Not you're wrong. Not you're weak. Not that you're doubting God. Not where's your faith. Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals. God ministered to him right there. In a jar of water. He ate. He drank. And he laid down again. You want to de-emphasize the importance of rest? Elijah, as he's working towards getting back to where he should be, understands I've got to rest. I just love this. I love the fact, this is how I, <laughs> I love the fact that God just always provides food. There's some bread and some hot coals, man. I read that verse this week, so you know what I did? I got on TikTok this week, and I searched for bread on hot coals because I want to see what it looked like. There's a lot of people with way too much time on their hands, and they film lots of videos of them making bread on hot coals. And it looked amazing. And now I want some bread on some hot coals. I'm a big fan of food, in case you cannot tell. My wife says I'm obsessed with food. I wake up every morning and I look at my wife and the first things out of my mouth every morning are, good morning, beautiful. She says, hey, baby. And I might say something else. But by about the fourth thing that I say, hey, what's for dinner? I don't know, Gary. Whatever I cook. No, 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 no. I don't care if you cook. We'll go out to eat. But I need to mentally prepare as I'm getting tired today, I want to think about it. I'll get to go home, and there's going to be spaghetti. I'm going to go home tonight, and there's going to be a steak. I don't want to think about a steak all day and come home and have chicken. I don't care what you cook. I just want to get ready for it. We'll go to breakfast. I say, hey, where do you want to go for lunch? She's like, we're at breakfast right now. Right, but we've got to eat lunch in like a few hours. Why don't we think about it? I love food, man. Food is amazing. 
I cornered Kathy Knight in the lobby today. I said, hey. She said, hey, said you been doing good? Yeah, I said, Ben, y'all been dealing with sickness? Yeah, Doug's been sick. I said, yeah, I said, I said we're about a week and a half away from Christmas Eve. Remember we had the chocolate chip cookies this year? I'm already thinking about the chocolate chip cookies on Christmas Eve. I'm a fan of food. And I like that God comes along and says, man, nourish up. He ate and he drank and he laid down again. I was talking to a counselor one time. I go to a counselor. It was years ago before I lost everything. I'll never forget the counselor. It was a different counselor at the time. It was a male counselor I was going to at that time. And he said, Gary, I think you really need to acknowledge that you're in the early stages of burnout. When I heard those words, I was like, no. It doesn't matter. I can be in the early stages of burnout, but it doesn't matter. I don't have time. I have three church services. I have to preach every Sunday morning to hold the crowds. Thousands of people showing up every thing. And the minute I get done preaching on Sunday, I got to get on a plane. I got to travel 30 weeks out of the year to go teach other churches how to do what we're doing down here in a movie theater. I, I don't really have time to burn out. He's like, you need an extended period. He said, you have pushed and you've pushed and you've pushed. He said, I, he said just take three to four Sundays off. I was like, no. Why not? I said, because I thought I had to do everything. Who else is going to teach? I'm never, he said, he said, how many people's on your staff? At that time, I had 15 full-time staff people. He said, one of them can't teach one Sunday. I was like, no. No. I don't have time to stop. He said, your church needs you to take some time off. Okay. I left. I never forget this. It was on a Monday. The very next day, Tuesday, we had staff meeting on Tuesday. You'd think I would have looked at my staff and be like, hey, guys, man, I'm tired. I'm burning out. And I said, hey, guys, in a month, we're going to add a fourth service because the three services are getting full, so get ready to gear up for another service. I didn't slow down. I just added more and more and more. I remember we were coming up on Christmas Eve, and they said, what are we going to do at Christmas Eve? So we began to calculate the numbers. And I said, well, we'll start two days in advance of Christmas Eve. And I said, we're going to do 11 Christmas Eve services this year. Why? I said, that's what we're going to take to hold everybody. I'll never forget a staff person coming to me like, hey, man, you know, I love you, and I love this church. Man, my parents are coming into town. I got small kids. Do I got to be here for all 11 services? I did nothing. He was the children's pastor. Had nothing to do with Christmas Eve services. He could have took every one of them off and we wouldn't have missed a beat. I said, well, you can be here or you can quit. What a jerk. And I have no doubt in my mind that my implosion, one of them led to never resting. Our off day was Monday. We had so many services on Sunday. I don't think I ever took a Monday off in five years. I was there every week. That's why we're so dogmatic about taking time off now. So last week we took off Monday. Christine took off Friday. And we get tense of moments. We're like, oh my God, now we're, we're behind them. I mean, we had a fight this weekend about it, and she was wrong, and I was right. She was really right, and I was wrong. 
you got to take time to rest. The importance of rest. My wife is learning how to rest. She doesn't know how to rest. She doesn't know how to sit still at all. And it catches up with you. The lack of rest is probably the number one command that we break. You know one of the big ten? To acknowledge the Sabbath and keep it holy. Take a day off. It doesn't have to be Sunday. It's just making sure you're taking a day off where you're unplugging, where to honor God with that day. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is simply rest. Gear up for those busy days. But I got this to do, and I got this to do, and I got this to do. You know what I've learned about this, this, and this that I got to do? It's always there after a day of rest. Didn't go anywhere. How many of you are guilty of this? I am Gary Lamb, and I am the king of this. If we just get through this, it's going to slow down. If we can just get through this festival, then we don't have another festival. They say it in a joking way, but they're really serious and get angry about it. I was down here with Bubba and Christine one day, and I looked at him and I said, I said, man, I have one more event, and we're done for the year. And I said, man, I'm done. I said, we're done for five months because winter months are busy, are off season. Ten minutes later, I get a phone call. And I walk in and I said, hey, I just added another event the week after that last event. And they look at me, and they're like, what? Yeah, but we need the money. We got to get it while it's always, always justified. Got to eat and you got to rest. Now, I'm not saying you got to be lazy. But you need to make sure you're taking care of your body and you're resting. The angel of the Lord came back a second time. Second time. And touched him and said, get up and eat. (laughs) Get that nourishment in you. For the journey's too much for you. What journey? The journey he'd been on. So he got up and he ate and he drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. It's the same mountain where scholars believe God gave down the Ten Commandments. He said, let's eat, let's rest, let's eat, let's rest. Then I'm going to send you this mountain to worship God for a little while. What we take, I'll be real careful here because I'm not an expert in this. But even the eating element, man, we need to learn how to eat healthy. So much trash and so much processed food, and we don't take care of our bodies. And I am not preaching at you, I am preaching with you. And we wonder why mentally we're not where we should be because we feed ourselves trash. And just for the record, little Debbie Christmas trees are not trash. That's not part of this conversation. So we're going to eat and we're going to rest. I'm going to get us out of here, I promise. Not one of the most exciting messages, not screaming, hollering, laughing, but sometimes the Bible just preaches itself. So first of all, we're going to eat and we're going to rest. Then we're going to allow God to replace our lies, our lies, with his truth. Then he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? 
He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. Now look at him, this exaggerating, depressed, weak-minded person. I'm the only one left. And they're trying to kill me. He hit that stage where he was tired, he was worried, he was malnourished. And now he's lying to himself. He starts telling the truth. I've been zealous for the Lord. True. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. True. They have broken down your altars. True. They have put your prophets to death with the sword. True. I'm the only one left. False. I'm the only one left. False. I'm the only one doing the work. False. I'm the only one who cares. False. I'm the only one who can get it done. False. When you hit a depressive state, here's what you will begin to do. You will own more responsibility than it is actually yours. Let me repeat that again. You will own more responsibility than is actually yours, and you will begin to lie to yourself. He had asked what God had, he had done what God had told him to do. But he thought he was supposed to do everything. God never called him to do everything. God called him to certain things. There's nobody else. There's nobody else. Nobody understands. If you read on the story, you'll see that's not the truth because God comes back and says, no, actually, everybody hasn't turned on me. God gave him a number. God said, there's actually 7,000 Israelites who are still faithful to me. 7,000 Israelites who still believe like you believe. 7,000 Israelites who I'm giving commands and I'm giving jobs and I'm asking them to carry out. I don't need you to take it all on. I just need you to do what I've called you to do. He began to replace Elijah's lies with his truth. Hey, Elijah, you've done great things, not trying to burst your bubble, but boom, you're not the only one. I'm the only one who serves here at this church. Hogwash. Just because they're not serving in the area you're serving doesn't mean other people aren't serving. Some other days, like, I, I'm just a little frustrated. They're here today. And they're probably feeling real awkward right now. And that's okay, because this is how stupid it was. So what are you frustrated about? I have to greet every week. How hard is that? You have to stand in the lobby and say hello to people as they come into church? You ought to be doing that even if you're not on the volunteer list that week. I literally looked at him and walked away. So now they know exactly where I stand on that. I have to greet every week. Who cares? I have to preach every week. Who has to lead worship every week? Bless your heart. Cry me a river. No one else does anything. No, all kinds of people do stuff. You just took on the easiest job, greeting. Yeah, people are here working with kids, getting hogtied right now by your demon children. Putting cameras over in the kids the other day just where we can just make just for insurance purpose and everything. I said, I was that to keep the workers accountable. I said, No, it's to keep the workers safe from the kids. Man. But we lie to ourselves all the time. My marriage can never be healed. You're right. God hasn't restored marriages. For thousands upon thousands of years. 
My kids are never going to come back to Christ. Yeah, not with that kind of faith. If they were my kids, and oh, by the way, I got some kids in that situation. I cling to that promise of God, raise up a child in the way it's going, when it's old, he will not depart from it. I replace lies with truth. We're never going to be able to have X, Y, Z. My God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. My God will never leave me nor forsake me. He has the hairs on my head. Numbers, if he takes care of the lilies and takes care of the ravens, why will he not take care of me? Man, you need to start replacing the lies with the truth. I'll never have a relationship with my kids. Maybe. But maybe you will. Man, I am going to tell a story that I should not, not because it's a bad story. I just didn't get permission, but I'm going to anyway. Kathy Knight, where are you at? How, how old's your daughter, Kathy Knight? How old? 54. I thought she was only 49. She shared the story, so I don't think I'm sharing. Am I allowed to share this story? Okay. Kathy got pregnant at a very young age. Gave up her child for adoption. And two years ago, her daughter finds her. It gets me emotional. To 52 years, 54 years this year, they go to Thanksgiving with them. She's back there telling me. Treated us like family. I wonder what happened if she just gave up. Do I think she'd have liked to have been in her daughter's life growing up? Yeah. In her 20s? Yeah. In her 30s? Yeah. In her 40s? Yeah. But guess what? She ain't got a time machine. She can't go back. She can talk, think about all the things she's missed. Or she can capitalize on the time that she has. And that's what she's done. That's an amazing story to me. I've known Kathy 15 years and never even knew she was battling that battle. Your place lies with truth. There's power in that. I want to be alone the rest of my life. Well, probably because you do nothing to meet people. I can't meet women. What? You think a woman's just going to randomly knock on your door one day, neck, and be like, hey, I heard you were single. You know? I'm always going to feel alone. I have no friends. Well, a person who has friends must find themselves friendly. That's Bible. We're going to replace lies with truth. The Bible says we take every thought captive, and we make those thoughts obedient to Christ. So how do we come out of that depressive state? We're going to rest and we're going to eat. We're going to replace the lies that the and you, the Bible says lies is the devil's native tongue. He speaks to you in lies. You're not good enough. No, you're good enough because God created you. We're going to replace lies with truth. We're going to listen and realize that God speaks sometimes in a still, small voice. Now, you've got to remember, up to this point, God's been, or Elijah's been dealing with the God of fire, shooting down fire. He's been dealing with the God of miraculous provision and miraculous miracles, bringing the dead back to life. And he's probably thinking to himself, man, God's going to show up in some big honking way, and he's not. I don't see the big honking way God's showing up. Maybe God's done with me. I'm not seeing the big signs, the big miracles. I'm going to go get depressed. But look what it says. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountains in the presence of the Lord. This is when he got to the mountain. For the Lord is about to pass by. 
Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shredded the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. So Elijah's sitting there, wind comes, he says, is that God? No, no God. Earthquake, oh, is that God? Fire comes, no, is that God? He's looking for this big miracle. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Sometimes God speaks to us in that still, small voice. And when you're in that depressive state, you've got to be listening for that. It could be something as simple as a song that comes on the radio. It could be something as simple as you're leaving this church. Someone comes up to you, shakes your hand, and just says something to you in passing that they don't really think about. But you realize God just spoke through them to you. Sometimes it's just getting as much as I Facebook drives me crazy. It's getting on Facebook and seeing one of those picture quotes. You're like, holy smokes, that was for me. Sometimes it's just in God's provisions. Sometimes it's just in God having someone do something nice for you. We're looking for this big, miraculous God, and he is a big, miraculous God. But sometimes, especially in our depressive state, he speaks to us in that still, small voice where he reminds you, I'm here. I'm with you. I'll never leave you. You're not alone. I'm enough. Sometimes you got to be willing to listen, though. We're going to realize that God speaks to that way. And the last of all, and we're done and I'm going home. I'm actually going to eat buffalo wings. We're going to realize that a lot of the ways God gets us out of a depressive state, and this is a hard one, because when you're depressed, you don't want to do anything. We're going to realize God's actually giving us something to do. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazel king, also anoint Jehu son of whatever, king over Israel. Don't miss this. And anoint Elisha to succeed you as a prophet. In other words, what God told Elijah was, hey, go back to doing what prophets do. Get back to doing what I called you to do. I know you don't feel like doing it. I know it's trudgery to do it right now. You feel like sitting up under this tree and dying, but you have now rested. You have now ate. And we have now replaced the lies with the truth. Get back to doing what I called you to do. I have something for you to do. God's called you to do something. God's called you to be a husband. God's called you to be a dad. God's called you to be a provider. God's called you to be a mother. God's called you to be a wife. God's called you to be a friend. God's called you to run a food pantry. God's called you to clothe people. God's called you to deal with addicts. God's called you just to be a listening ear to people who are going through hard times. I don't know what God has called you to do, but here's what I'm telling you. The call of God is irrevocable. He doesn't remove the call from your life. The church removes the call from your life for some stupid reason. 
at my lowest point when I lost everything, I knew God was not done with me. The church might have been done with me. Other churches might have been done with me. Pastors might have been done with me. But the call of God was still on my life. Do you think I wanted to start another church? No. No offense. Up until that point in my life, I owned a company. I had started a company because I had to provide for my family. I was making more money than I had ever made in my life. The week before I had a meeting about starting a new church, I made the single biggest check I'd ever made in my life for a job. I made 37000 I know it's pocket change to some of you. But for me doing one job and seeing $37,000 on a check, I was in the best financial position of my life. And you mean to walk away from this to go start a church? In the ghetto? In the town where I screwed up? No! We ain't doing that, God. But we did it. Because <laughs> can't argue with God, he wins. You know what I mean? God gave him this gift. He said, go anoint Elisha. I think this is cool. Go anoint Elisha. God gave him this gift as Elijah. He gave him someone who believed in him. A friend, a younger one. Elijah, the man of God, and now Elisha comes along and they start doing what prophets do together. And Elisha looks at him and says, man, if there's anything I could have, I want a double portion of what you have. Elijah says, man, well, if you're here, but I'm taking to heaven, you'll get it. So Elisha stays by his side. And I find this ironic. Elijah's one of only two people in the Bible who never died. God just jerked him up and took him to heaven. Remember what the story started from? His biggest fear was? The queen was going to kill him. God comes around, gets him out of state, and he never dies. He's taken to heaven. Man, you're going to go through periods of depression. You're going to go through the funk. I call it the dip. I preached a message called Dip Happens. You're going to go through the dip. It's unavoidable. And here's the thing. Mountaintop experience. Nowhere to go but down. So it's always going to come after a great victory. Boom. Because that's normally after that great victory is when you're the tiredest. Is that a word, tiredest? It is when Gary's preaching. That's Southern East, you Yankees. It's okay to get depressed. It's okay to get depressed during the holidays. Do not feel shame in it. Do not let anyone tell you you're wrong for it. Don't let anybody tell you you're weak for it. It's okay. But it is is not okay to stay there. You find yourself there, you're going to go eat and rest. Go sleep. Ladies, I know you feel like as moms you can't do. You tell your husband, I'm going to sleep for the next 36 hours. And when I get done, this house still better be standing and the kids better be fed. Men, 
She tells you that. You man up and you do what you need to do. Men, you need to rest. It's okay. Take a day off. Don't take a month off. Take a day off and rest. Eat and rest. You're going to replace those lies in your head with truth. We're just going to listen for that small voice of God and just get back to doing what you're called to do. Because the greatest ploy of the devil is he knows once you're a child of God, he can't have you. But he knows he can get you off mission. The devil loves a saint on the sideline. 